Well, good morning. Excellent. It's good to see you all here. Uh, before we get to uh, kind of get into our message this morning, I have a quick announcement um, that I want to, uh, would ask for your attention uh, for. Uh, this, this next weekend, Friday and Saturday, we have uh, a pretty cool event happening here at the church, and the information is in your bulletin uh, about that. This is our second annual, what we're calling Christian Thought Forum. And last year, you might remember, we had Doug Guyvett come up, and he uh, presented uh, some refutation uh, against uh, Richard Dawkins' book and his presentation at UAF recently, and uh, did a debate up at the UAF campus and spoke to us here about the resurrection of Christ. So this is the second year we're doing this same kind of event. We have some different speakers coming, and uh, in your bulletin, as you can see, the title of this uh, is To Everyone an Answer, Defending the Scriptures and Responding to the Skeptics. That's going to be Friday night and Saturday as well, October 19th and 20th. It's going to be right here uh, in, in the auditorium. And uh, some of the, the speakers that we're having, Dr. Ron Rhodes and Dr. Stephen Collins, uh, are just some excellent guys. Uh, the topics that are going to be addressed, as you can see in your bulletin, are Mormonism, Atheism, Humanism, and also some recent archaeological discoveries that uh, really validate the scriptures. And really the whole point of this is we're an equipping church, and we want to make sure that we equip you to understand the scriptures, to trust in them, to believe in them, so that you can have winsome conversations based on reason with those who may be skeptical or those who may not believe. And so that's really what we're trying to do there, and we, so we hope that will be an encouragement to you. Uh, I want to tell you just a little bit about Dr. Rhodes here. Uh, he's a very popular conference speaker. He's spoken at some of the largest churches in America. Um, he's got more than a million books in print in several different languages. Uh, he's taught courses at Dallas Theological Seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary, and Biola University. Go Eagles! There's not too many alumni up here. There's just a few of us. <laughs> Uh, but Dr. Rose is just an excellent communicator, and he's able to talk about really difficult subjects in a concise and clear, understandable way. Uh, Stephen Collins is obviously is sort of the expert on archaeology, and he's overseen uh, a couple of different and very important archaeological digs. Uh, he's been a, a scholar and uh, an apologist for over 30 years. These are good guys, and this is something that we're trying to put forward to encourage you, to encourage your faith, so that you will be... Uh, more solid in your beliefs and your understanding, and that that will help you articulate uh, your faith in a winsome way with those who um, who maybe don't believe or who are skeptical or just have good questions. Uh, there is a cost. Uh, it's 20 bucks uh, at the door for Saturday. Uh, Friday night is we're going to take a love offering, so we just want you to know about that. It's just sort of the cost of having these guys uh, come up here. And um, on Saturday in particular, there's going to be an opportunity for you to ask your questions. Those really hard questions, you know, in the middle of a Sunday morning when you want to raise your hand and say, ah, what about this? This is your chance. You get to ask them, and they'll give you a better answer than I could give you. So please consider that, Bethel Church. Uh, That information is there for you in your bulletin. If you have any other questions, I would encourage you to talk to Holly Pivick. I don't see her right now. She's probably out. She'll be back. But uh, Holly is the person that you can talk to. She's done a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of getting this thing up and going. So with that, let's pray. And, uh, and then we'll dive into the word this morning. Father, I just want to thank you for your grace in our lives. 
we were born into this world with a sinful nature and a desire to sin, and we were pretty good at it, each and every one of us. We have chosen to rebel against you and to do things that are shameful, things that hurt us and hurt others. And yet you tell us in the scriptures that by your grace, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You demonstrated your love for us in that. You provided a way by which we could be forgiven and restored to you in relationship. It has really nothing to do with us. It has to do with the fact that you were willing to reconcile us to yourself. So we gather again this morning and we say thank you for that. It's because of that grace that we worship. It's because of that grace and that new position that we have with you, that new relationship that we have as your sons and daughters, that we study your word so that we might know you better and and learn how to become more and more like Jesus, our Savior. It's because of that that we study and, and sharpen our skills and sharing our faith with others so that we might pass on this life-changing good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. That we might live a new life, an abundant life, overflowing into eternity. This is good news and we're thankful for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take out your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, we are starting our new series. We've just finished our series on the book of James. And we are now going to be diving into the book of Ephesians. This is week one, so uh, you're at the right place at the right time. Um, I was a little bit late in kind of coming up with sort of an overall theme or or word choice that I think describes this series, but uh, uh, it seems to me that if I were to pick one word or one concept that describes the book, it would be this, courage. Uh, I don't do a good cowardly lion uh, impression, so... Uh, I won't do that this morning, but I know, I know I'll work on it. We'll, we'll, we'll take nominations from the floor if there's anybody that might be good at it. Uh, but that's what I really see as kind of the central message of the book of, uh, of Ephesians, and we'll unpack that a little bit uh, more as we go here. I want to start this morning by asking this. Um, I want to talk a little bit about unused resources, and I'll tie this in in just a minute here. Did you know, here's some statistics for you, did you know that 6 to 10% of gift cards that are given go unused? 6 to 10%. Isn't that amazing? Not, it's not true for me. I've got those suckers spent before they have arrived, you know. Uh, 6 to 10% of gift cards uh, go unused. Uh, but I did experience it this way. Uh, a couple of years ago, Amy and I had a garage sale, and we had tons of books out, and we ended up not selling them. And so we went down to uh, Gulliver's here in town, and we dropped off our used books. I'm sure many of you have done this before. And they give you a used book voucher worth a certain amount of money. You know, They kind of give you a value for what you've given them, and then they say, you can spend this here. And so I, I brought that in, and, and they gave me a piece of paper, a voucher worth well over $100. I don't remember the actual amount. And $100 of used books goes a long way, let me tell you. And I thought, boy, this is great. And they told me, don't lose this because this is like cash. And, okay, and guess what I did? I lost it. So I don't fall into the gift card category, but yeah, here I lost a resource. Let me tell you this one. There's another scholar. His name is Tim Jones. He's an anthropologist at, the, at UA 
Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology, and he found that Americans waste 14% of their food. 14%. And that calculated in terms of dollars, that that equates to $43 billion per year in just wasted food. Uh, Let me bring this a little closer to home. Did you know that last week... Over 50% of the Hershey's Kisses that have been set out in the front rows as incentive to bring you forward went unclaimed. Uh, And I'm not saying that they weren't eaten, but they weren't eaten by the resident of the seat that they were placed on. Um, It is a truism that we as a people do not take full advantage of the rights and the privileges and the resources that we have available to us. And in the same way that that's true of us as people, it's also true of us as Christians. We have an amazing amount of of wealth and power and spiritual resource. Spiritual wealth, spiritual power, spiritual resource. And we don't tap into it. And we often waste it. And it, it could be because we don't know, it could be because we lack conviction, but I think oftentimes it's because we lack courage. And that really is the central message of the book of Ephesians. It's this, understand your position in Jesus Christ. Understand who you are. Understand what God has done for you and who he has made you to be by the power of Jesus. Understand your identity. Know who you are and whose you are. And then walk in a manner that is worthy of it. And his message particularly to the Ephesians is, have courage. Or in one word, courage. I had a chance to go to Ethiopia in 2006 and 2008, and they have a, a great word there. If you're speaking to a woman and you're trying to encourage her, you say, Aizosh. It means Courage. Or if you're speaking to a man, it's pronounced a lot more difficult. It's like Aizoch, and there's some sound on the end that I can't quite get right. Aizosh, Aizoch, and I think that is what uh, the Apostle Paul is telling us here. The book of Ephesians, uh, it's one of the most beloved and really profound books in the entire New Testament. And it's interesting to me that uh, we are coming from the book of James to uh, the book of Ephesians. Because James, after all, is one of the first New Testament books to have been written, uh, but it was one of the last to be accepted into the canon of Scripture. Uh, it was a lot of argument, a lot of debate, a lot of, a lot of heat over that particular book, and so uh, it's received a, a lot of sort of criticism. Uh, on the other hand, uh, on the other hand, Ephesians has been largely one of the most popular and uh, most widely accepted and beloved books of the New Testament. One commentator actually used the word sublime to describe the book, and that kind of made me laugh just a little bit. Um, Romans is generally considered to be the most impressive book that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, and Ephesians would sort of probably be considered the most elegant. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but uh, I, think, I think those are apt uh, descriptions. So you have a handout in your bulletin this morning, and we're just going to kind of work our way through that and... Uh, Make sure that we have a good background, a good understanding of this book before we kind of uh, dive into it headlong. So the author, first of all, the author of the book, 
it's fairly straightforward. It's almost universally accepted that it was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, virtually everybody uh, believes that. It's pretty easy to see why right there in the first verse. He owns it, doesn't he? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty good indication of authorship right there, isn't it? Uh, and then secondly, actually he goes on in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he identifies himself again. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Uh, if that wasn't enough, there's at least four other references in the book that kind of implicitly identify him uh, as the author. He calls himself, in, in chapter 3, verse 7, he calls himself a servant of the gospel. That's common Pauline language. That's, that's how Paul consistently refers to himself, a servant of the gospel. Uh, another one, as, there's at least four of these kind of implicit references. There's that one, and then he also indicates that he is one who is presently suffering for the gospel. And that really fits the life of Paul, doesn't it? Thirdly, he identifies himself as a prisoner of the Lord, right there in verse three, one, that we, or chapter 3, verse 1. We just looked at that. And, and if we looked at Paul's rap sheet, we would see, yeah, he was a prisoner. He was a criminal. Uh, if we were to do a, a national background check on Paul to work with one of our children's ministries here at the church, we would find, yes, convict. He spent time in jail. Paul was a prisoner. And so that matches with the description. And then lastly, he identifies an associate here, Tychicus, right there in the last chapter of the book, chapter 6. In fact, Tychicus is kind of named as the delivery boy for this particular message. Uh, He was a known associate of the Apostle Paul. Uh, In other words, if we were trying to convict Paul of writing the book, we could do it. We could do it. We have his own confession, we have his fingerprints all over it, and all kinds of supporting evidence that it, excuse me, that it was Paul. Um, additionally, the early church is basically unanimous in accepting his authorship of the book. So there's more evidence, but I think we have enough for us, don't we? Let's look at the date. Uh, virtually everybody agrees that the date of the authorship of the book is about AD 59 to AD 61, right in there. I know that sounds completely abstract and, you know, well, what does that mean? Let me, let me put it to you in some different terms. Uh, notice that this date is just 15 years later than the writing of the book of James, which we just finished. Remember, we talked about James having been written uh, in AD 45, some of the first words of the New Testament. And do you remember the context behind James? Remember why it was written? It was because persecution broke out in, in Jerusalem, and the believers there were forced to flee to the surrounding areas, We read about that persecution in Acts 8 and Acts 11. And who was at the center point of that persecution? Do you remember? Saul, who would later give his life to Jesus and become the Apostle Paul. In other words, 15 years later, after great persecution broke out in Jerusalem, at the hands of this man, 15 years later, he turns around and becomes the principal teacher and apologist and apostle for the church. So these dates may be somewhat random, but I find that to be fascinating. And I think the Apostle Paul is maybe one of the greatest testimonies in the history of the church that God changes lives. The Apostle Paul was a murderer of Christians and a persecutor of the church. And God had a plan for his life. Praise God.
I think in, I, of the words in chapter 9, Acts 9, verse 1, it says that, and Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. That was his disposition to the church. And God said, no, you're going to be mine. I've got big work for you to do. The location of this book, where's Paul writing from? Interesting. Uh, Paul is writing from prison. And I believe prison in Rome. He was in prison several times, but I believe this is from his imprisonment in Rome. Uh, So this book is considered to be uh, one of his prison epistles, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, And they were likely written and delivered right about the same time. Again, I find just a little bit of irony here, because here the Apostle Paul, in writing this particular message to the Ephesians, is writing from prison. Remember, the heart of his message is, remember your position in Christ. Consider the rights and the privileges and the power that you have in Jesus and walk in a manner worthy of them. These are the words that are being written from a prisoner, someone who is incarcerated. And I think that's just fascinating. I mean, it seems so contradictory to his circumstances as one who is chained up and imprisoned. And yet at the same time, who better? than someone who is imprisoned to call us out to remember the freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ and to challenge us to walk in, in a full manner of the power and the privilege and the resources that we have through Jesus. Uh, I, I can just imagine myself as I was thinking about this this week, or I can just imagine the Apostle Paul under house arrest in prison, chained up perhaps. His freedoms have been completely limited privileges gone no no resources trusting the generosity of others for his general care and i imagine him just thinking you know this would make an excellent framework for the encouragement that the church needs to needs to receive they have all of this freedom in christ they have all of these spiritual resources they have all of this, these privileges available to them and they don't use them. And they take them for granted. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write to them about that. Now, I don't know. I'm just speculating. That's just the teacher and me imagining myself in Paul's shoes. But I have, I have a sense that that's probably what happened. Um, also, understanding that Paul's kind of writing this from prison really wakes up some interesting passages throughout the book, especially in Ephesians 6. Because there he talks to us about putting on the full armor of God. And that sort of comes to life and has an added dimension to it when we consider the fact that while he's writing that, he's very likely looking at one of the Praetorian Guard, one of the Roman officers that would have uh, watched over him and kept him in his place. Uh, And so I can just imagine, uh, and I I find this to be incredibly encouraging actually, uh, in, in the midst of all of the difficulty and this incarceration that Paul's experiencing, he's going to take this and he's going to use this to encourage others. He's going to take the very guard that's watching him and turn him into an illustration for the church. Is that cool or what? I, I can imagine him saying, hey guard, could you, you know, could you turn a little bit this way? Because I want to check out your outfit. Okay. Ooh, belt of truth. You know, I'm going to write that down. What else do we have? Shield of, shield of faith. That's good. Helmet of salvation. He just turns the circumstances into encouragement for the church. 
Uh, I think that's just that's fantastic. Um, who's the audience of this particular book? What's the occasion? Why is it written? Uh, there's a little bit of debate actually as to whether Paul is writing uh, just to the believers in Ephesus or whether he's writing to a broader audience than that. And let me tell you a little bit the reason why. Uh, just recently, or by recently I mean in the, in the 1800s, uh, it's all relative, you know. <laughs> Uh, there are five early manuscripts uh, that were discovered uh, and uh, that did not include the inscription in Ephesus. Okay? And three of these manuscripts were considered to be some of the most accurate, uh, and uh, the oldest and the most accurate. Uh, one of these was called the Codex Sinaiticus. And I know that sounds like, well, why are we interested or why, why do we care? I, it was interesting to me because actually Amy and I got to see this. Uh, in the British Library in the UK when we were on sabbatical uh, this last year. And so it was really fun to be able to look at that. That would be sabbatical number one for those of you who got sucked into Pastor Mark's little jibe a couple weeks ago. Uh, so we actually got to see this. But um, there's a lot of different speculation as to why these, er, these five early manuscripts would not include the inscription to Ephesus uh, and really the largest or the most, the most common position that people come to is that the epistle was meant to be, this letter was meant to be what we call an encyclical. Remember this term? Same thing as the book of James. It also was an encyclical. In other words, it was a letter to be delivered most likely to several different churches within a region. And I would say principally and primarily Ephesus was its primary audience, but it had application and it was appropriate for lots of different churches in the surrounding, uh, surrounding area. And let me give you a couple of reasons to, um, to support that. So again, the audience and the occasion, it was most likely an encyclical letter intended for several different churches in the region. Ephesus, its primary audience. Some of the reasons to support this are, uh, number one, because there's no specific problems that are addressed in Ephesus or in this letter. When Paul writes to the Galatians, man, he... He goes after them. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's got some specific problems in mind for that particular church, and he calls them out on those, those issues. Same thing in 1 Corinthians, same thing in Romans. Uh, so it, it's a little odd that he doesn't name a specific problem if he was writing to just one church. Uh, secondly, there's no personal references uh, in uh, the book of Ephesus. And that's unusual because, you know, if you, if you look at Romans, for example, Romans 16, he seemingly names half the town. You know, he, he's, greet this person, greet that person. I mean, he, he names everybody. And so it's a little odd that if he was writing to just one church that he wouldn't have any of those uh, specific references, especially in light of the fact uh, that Paul had some pre-existing relationships with this church. He had spent a great amount of time there in some of his early missionary journeys. And he had some very close associations with them. I want to talk about that just a little bit. So Paul's relationship to Ephesus. We're told that he visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey. And uh, that's in Acts 18, verse 19. Let me read this for you. You can begin. To, what I want you to hear in these passages that I'm going to read to you are the personal connection, the relationship, the time, the investment that the Apostle Paul spent with this particular church. Okay? Uh, it says in verse 19 of Acts 18, they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back 
if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. And so there's kind of his first greeting, or at least the first that we're indicated, that's indicated to us uh, on his second missionary journey. And then he spent two to three years of his third missionary journey in Ephesus. Two to three years. I can tell you, I've been to Ethiopia twice. And I've spent, you know, I think it was two weeks the first time and just a week the second time. I, know, I still know those people's names. And there's, there's still memories that I have. And when I hear of different occasions, whether good or bad, my heart still bleeds for them. Uh, and so Paul, but Paul spent two to three years there. In Acts 19, 8-10, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, which was the early movement of the Christian faith. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God, the word of the Lord. And then in Acts 20.31, it says, this is... um, Again, Acts 20.31, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Does Paul love these people? Does he know these people? Has he labored for them? Absolutely. And then uh, lastly, we have this, this occasion where Paul is sort of traveling through the area on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops at a town known as Miletus, and he calls for the elders to come to him there and meet him there because of their association. This is in Acts 20, verse 17. It says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Lord Jesus. Paul loves these people. He knows these people. And I have the sense that if he was writing to just them, he probably would have dropped a few names and and, uh, addressed a few specific issues. So I think the evidence is well taken. He's writing to an area, a region, lots of different churches, Ephesus being probably the primary audience. Again, I want to say this. There's five manuscripts that don't include the address uh, to Ephesus here. There are 5,000 Greek manuscripts that do include the phrase to Ephesus. Uh, In other words, the early church believed that it was the principal audience. If a letter was written to the interior of Alaska, we would say it probably includes Ninana, North Pole, uh, Fox, maybe even Esther, at least the asteroids, or asteroids, what do they call themselves? The asteroids, I think, uh, would certainly claim. Uh, but we would understand that principally it would be written to Fairbanks uh, because of our, our general stature in the region. Uh, let's, let's talk just a little bit about Ephesus and what was going on culturally there. It was one of the most important cities in the entire Roman Empire, population of over 300,000 people. This was a major major city, and it had a very strategic uh, location commercially. It was located right on the Castor River, three miles from the Aegean Sea. I know that unless you have great geography or maps in your Bible, that might mean hardly anything to you. Uh, It had one of the best seaports in all of Asia, which made it 
kind of the basis for trade for anywhere uh, east of there over land. In other words, it had some similarities to Fairbanks when you want to think about it that way. Commercially, we serve as the support hub for the rest of Alaska, don't we? Generally speaking. And so there's something a little bit in common that we might have with Ephesus in that way. Uh, there are some other things where I think Ephesus is probably similar to Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, in particular, it was a community of religious pluralism. We like to think that we live in unique times and that we've never had so much different religious belief and, and um, conflict and debate over these kinds of things. But Solomon was right. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, it was a very pluralistic and even a pagan society uh, at that time. And so, again, we share some commonality there. Um, sort of a special note about the, about the town of Ephesus. It was the home of a, an amazing worship center dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis. Or in the, in the Latin, it's Diana. If, you, if your name is Diana, uh, you can blame your parents for that. Sorry. Uh, but she was the supposed daughter uh, of Zeus, and she was known as kind of a virgin goddess, the divine huntress, fertility deity. And she would have been, I think, widely popular in Fairbanks, Alaska. <laughs> um, this temple that was devoted to her worship, and this is important to understand this, uh, um, about just the prominence of this temple and the worship of her in this particular community. But this temple that was devoted to her was 340 feet long, 160 feet wide, and decorated with 100 columns that were 55 feet high. That's enormous. And it was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, I did a little bit of research and I contrasted it with the, the Solomonic Temple, and it would have been more than six times the size of the Solomonic Temple. This thing was massive. And, um, and, and one of the realities of it was that the worship of this particular uh, goddess and this sort of this temple and all of the, the stuff surrounding was that it had an incredible impact on virtually every aspect of the city and the community uh, of Ephesus itself. Uh, the temple became a major banking center, uh, this, this particular goddess that was, uh, was worshipped, her image adorned their coins. Uh, there was a month of the year that was named for her. There were Olympic-style games that were held in her honor. And, and this is important to understand, it was big business. It was big business. Uh, as we look over into the books of Acts uh, in chapter 19, we find that actually a community-wide riot broke out over this, over the fact that Christians were in this town in Ephesus and that they were preaching the gospel because it was affecting business. The silversmith Demetrius, who made images of worship to this divine goddess, was seeing business going down because Christians were, were peeling away from the faith. And so a riot broke out, and at one point, 50,000 people gathered together in the Colosseum, and for a couple of hours, they, they chanted, Great is Artemis. And the Christians in the region feared for their lives. That's the backdrop. That's what's going on in this particular region. Now, we don't face that exactly, so I was trying to think of a close parallel to this. Has anybody ever been to Eugene, Oregon? A few of you. This town is centered around, you, I don't know, one or two things. Let's, what's the one thing that is predominant? The Oregon Ducks. 
also Nike having had its beginnings there is pretty prominent. But when there is an Oregon Duck football game, the whole town is out in force. I mean, it is almost, it's almost, hear me right, it is almost cultic, uh, the following. And they all walk to Autzen Stadium and, or just to get near to hear it or whatever. I mean, and, and that stadium is generally considered to be one of the greatest home field advantages in all of college football. I mean, it is crazy. And Ducks fans are crazy. You, you know when you've met a true Duck fan because they're just this side of totally unbalanced. Um, and and here's, here's what I want you to know. You could not be, you, you could not be a Washington Husky fan and live openly as a Washington Husky fan in Eugene, Oregon. You're, you would be in, in danger, real physical harm. And I don't think I'm exaggerating that. Uh, if you've ever been there. Now, on the other hand, I think you could probably get away with being a Ducks fan and even live in the college district of the University of Washington. But you, but it couldn't be the other way around. You would not be safe. You would live in fear. They call the annual contest of Oregon Ducks and the Washington Huskies coming together for a football game. Do you know what they call it? Anybody? The War. That's exactly right. It's called The War. And this last version of it, the Ducks won 52 to 21. Brutal. Uh, anyways, I was just trying to think of a, like a dynamic in everyday life that we might encounter that would sort of resemble this. And I think, I think Eugene, Oregon might be the ex- best example that I can think of, of Ephesus. <laughs> okay? uh, you can imagine that kind of pressure uh, that it felt for Christians to live in Ephesus. They had cultural pressures. The money, the calendar, the, uh, the events, um, the temple. They had cultic pressure, the worship of this particular goddess. And with the whole town really being centered around it economically and every otherwise, it would have presented uh, great difficulty. Uh, even, uh, you can imagine, just educationally, what would you have taught? What do you teach your kids? How would they go to school? How would they interact with the kids around them uh, who believed in this, this deity of worship in contrast to the one true God? Does that, does that sound anything like today? Does that feel anything like today? I think it does. We live in a world today of, of growing religious pluralism. We live in a world today that expects us to champion what I would call the new tolerance, which is not just that we would tolerate the beliefs of others, but that we somehow have to celebrate the beliefs and the diversity of others, regardless of whether or not it squares with Scripture. We can't just allow it passively to happen. We're supposed to celebrate it. That's what tolerance of our world is. We live in a world that has become more and more Hostile to Christians. I don't think I'm exaggerating that. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was driving in town. I was over on Pegger Road, and I pulled up behind a truck. On the back of this truck were two bumper stickers. One was a UAF bumper sticker on the left, and on the right, the other one said, So many Christians, so few lions. That is hostility to the faith. 
I mean, we, we might look at Ephesus and say, that was a unique time and place. That was pretty bad then. No, it's pretty bad now. It's pretty bad now. And I'll just leave that, leave that be. We live in a world also where there's an increasing number of dangerous and even addictive things that we would bring upon ourselves. Am I right? Uh, this next year, 2013, the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic, Diagnostic and Statistical Mental Disorder Manual that's coming out. Well, guess what? They're adding more conditions to it. This is the manual by which therapists use to evaluate people to identify a particular condition that they might have so they can treat them under insurance. Okay? That's principal use. They're adding to it this year uh, internet and media addictions, including video game addictions. And I don't know what else, but I, I know that that, that has, is being considered to be added to this particular manual. In other words, we find more and more creative ways of harming ourselves. So it doesn't just come at us from those who are adversarial to Christ, but sometimes it's self-inflicted. We live in a world where it is very tempting to retreat to, I think, just what we would see as safe enclaves of Christianity or religious worship instead of living in an engaged way with a community that is, to be honest, fairly hostile towards us. That's the temptation, isn't it? If they're going to be hostile, then we'll just hide over here. It's a, it's a challenge to live life in and amongst those who are antagonistic towards Christ, to maintain a positive witness, and to be engaged in their lives without either giving in to all of those things or without sort of running away from all of those things. It is a difficult balance to live in, a, in, a, in an engaged way. I don't know if you guys feel that. I think it's easy to feel overwhelmed and fearful and all of these kinds of things. The book of Ephesians is written... Uh, boy, I got way behind on this, didn't I? It's written to make Christians aware of the position that we have in Jesus Christ and to encourage us to live in a manner uh, that is consistent with that, that we would draw upon those principles in the way that we live. Um, that's the theme and the purpose of it. The key verse for the book, I would say, is, is Ephesians 4.1. Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Understand who you are in Christ and have the courage to live consistently with that taking advantage of all of those spiritual resources that God has given to you. The first three verses, I think, offer some excellent encouragement. I'm going to hit them really quickly here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he says right there, this is written to the faithful. This is written to Christians. And his message is not to correct them or to confront them with something, but to encourage them. He doesn't mean to give them a kick on the backside. He means to give them a pat on the backside. Be encouraged. These are already those who are loyal to Christ. And then it says, to the saints. Again, he's not writing to everyone. He's writing to Christians. He's writing them about how they walk. And he calls them here saints, which means holy ones. He reminds them that they have been chosen by God and, and set apart. Chosen by God and sit apart. Try to catch up here. 
And then finally he gives what is a very customary greeting for the Apostle Paul. He says, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. And by, by using this word grace, he is reminding them of the grace that they have received. He is reminding them of the position that they are in with God. And then when he, when he encourages them with this word of peace, he's reminding them, therefore peace is the posture that you should maintain with each other. And peace is the posture that you have with Christ. Grace and peace going together. As a result of the grace that you've received, live in peace. This is going to be a good book. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are. This book isn't outdated, irrelevant. It has everything to do with who we are as Christians today. It has to do with living in a hostile world, understanding who we are in Christ, and tapping into the full rights, privileges, and resources that God has given to us. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we've just been through a whole lot of information. And I would ask that you would use this background to set us up for just an excellent understanding of who we are, of what you've done in our lives, and that we would have the ability to tap into those spiritual resources for which you, to, that you have given to us, that we might live righteous and holy lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.